Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, I'm Rob Jan. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1285 entitled Max Height, Free Miles. Our podcast title is JetPod Disconnect and to set the tone for our interview today somebody who I will be talking about in a moment, I'll just give you a, a track to begin with, which I heard um, more or less played on the uh, the Lost in Space reboot series uh, on the uh, in the second season where um, <laughs> where John Robinson had a warble at it. This is Alistair Reynolds, creator of the Revelation Space series. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G on three triple R FM. Fasten your safety belts. You're in for a bumpy ride. Yeah, there we had the Joker and essentially the Space Cowboy song, as I prefer to call it myself, which I um, I was listening to uh, on Lost in Space, the uh, the reboot on Netflix. Um, we were talking about that last week. The Steve Miller band there. All right, now I've got many things to talk about today, but mostly a feature interview. Now, the book is called Providence. It's a, a, a hatchet paperback. And our author interview is a Melbourne-based writer who has created six novels, Syrup, Jennifer Government, Company, Machine Man, Lexicon, and now Providence. He also created the online political game Nation States, and Syrup was adapted into a movie in 2013, uh, directed by Aram Rappaport and starring, amongst others, Amber Heard, who we've talked about before on Zero G. She plays uh, uh, Mira, the Atlantean queen in the DC Justice League and Aquaman movies. Now, Providence is the tale of a long cruise into no man's space as the artificially intelligent warship of the title and its four human crew fight the deadly alien space-going beings known as the Salamanders. Now, Providence is out now in Hatchet Books, paperback, obviously purchase it for door-to-door delivery. Uh, Max Barry is the author and we are chatting to him now. G'day, Max. Hello, yes, yes. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And we've also got our co-host, Megan McHugh. Yes, hello, I am here as well. <laughs> everybody's, everybody's sort of here. We're all in virtual space at the moment. Now, Max, uh, thanks to uh, Bella Lloyd from Hatchet Books and Triple R's own talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, for setting this up. And the book has this uh, very charming red cover that says Providence and Max Barry there and a spaceman sort of uh, in a watery kind of depth in, in, inside of it. Now, Max, where did, where did the cover come from? Yeah, it's the, the astronaut in tomato soup. Um, I've heard it described. It's, it's very red. It's kind of eyeball searingly red, um, which is good because, you know, I've, I've written this um, space opera, basically. It has aliens in it. It has spaceships in it. Um, it's the kind of 
setting that I adored as a teenager when I just devoured tons and tons of science fiction, a fair helping of fantasy as well, but just loved those um, classic sci-fi stories of um, great humans and bad aliens and what happens when the two meet. Um, but what you do when you give a, a book like that, and, and I hope this is a fairly thoughtful take on that genre, but what happens when you give a book like that to a publisher is they reach for the standard sort of spaceship in outer space design and that goes on the cover. So um, I I was really hoping that they could do something imaginative and a little bit different with this. Um, and they came up with this really, really nice design. It's um, it's unusual looking. It does have this astronaut. You can't really see any details about him or her, but they are in water, um, which is not the place you normally find an astronaut. So uh, it's kind of arresting from that point of view. So yeah, when they when they came up with that, I was really delighted because you have no control over that as an author. You kind of you, you control all the words between the covers, but then what actually goes on the front, um, which is tremendously important, uh, is up to the publisher. So you just have to cross your fingers and hope to a degree. I've actually found that publishers are always like asking for my feedback on covers, and which is really nice. But regardless of whether I say I love it or I hate it, they still go with that cover. So <laughs> it's it's not really an interactive process. It reminds me a bit of uh, Interstellar, actually. There are astronauts in water in that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because obviously there's been so many stories of people in space, um, right from the like the present day sort of astronauts through to this kind of setting, which is more futuristic. And yeah, I think we've all we've all seen that so many times. We've all read it so many times. You need something a little bit different. It reminds me, the book reminds me of several um, other tropes as we were talking about in science fiction, uh, manifest in, in long voyage stories like uh, the movie Dark Star, or if we go into the into the uh, into the ocean. Speaking of people being in water, um, a book called a book and a film called The Enemy Below, which is about a, a destroyer chasing a submarine. Uh, the Bedford Incident, which is, again is a destroyer or something like that chasing a sub, um, or Master and Commander. So. When I was um, growing up, there were a lot of books that, that influenced me in the whole sort of space war sort of genre. Um, the Forever War, Joe Haldeman's books, uh, David yes. Gerald's Star Wolf books. Um, but it also rem- Providence also reminds me of some of the books of C.S. Forrester and J.A. MacDonald's in their World War II books. Are there any of those influences uh, resonating with you? Yeah, there's um, there's definitely a, a military edge to it because it is a story about war, um, or it, it takes place in a war at least. Um, yeah, for me, the most important part of it was this um, this setting where there are four people who are a very long way from home with um, an important job to do. And um, so the this deal is that what happens in the beginning of this book is there is first contact with an alien species that turns out to be tremendously hostile. And what Earth does in response is to pour resources into defence because what happens, of course, when our actual survival is threatened is that trumps everything else. So um, we we unite as a species to um, to build these enormous battleships at great human cost and human sacrifice in terms of um, resources and, and effort. Uh, and the um, the technology is so advanced that there isn't a whole lot for the actual people to do on these ships, um, because you know you see that in modern warfare, it's it's all drones and screens. It's there's not a whole lot of human fighting in the sense that that wars used to be about human beings facing other human beings. It doesn't really work like that so much anymore. 
so these people are out there for um, what they discover is less a military exercise than it really appears and, and a bit more of a, a PR exercise um, because that's what you need to, to run a war in a democracy. You need to actually bring the people along to a certain extent. So these four people have um, varied reasons for going out there and uh, different motivations for, for what they want to get out of the mission, I suppose. I want to drill, uh, and, drill, yeah. just drill down into what you just said then about um, uh, the crew, the four-man crew being social media stars. Um, the, the artificial intelligence that, run the ship, that runs the ship is not actually a social media star as far as I can, I can tell. He's not like Hell 9000 with his own feed. Um, Machine Man, one of your previous books, now that was released uh, as, a, as a kind of a, a serial online. Now, a feature of Providence is that the crew are social media stars. Were you tempted to couch the narrative in clips, tweets and other social content forms? Right, yeah. Um, yeah, that's... Um it's an interesting parallel you draw there because, I mean, the reason it works like that is not because it's a major theme of the book, um, except insofar as uh, public opinion and perception are important to um, what's going on in the story. But, yeah, the social media thing I really just see as, as a part of the fabric of the world, both that we live in now and, and also the story world, in that it's an inevitable, inevitable part of what has to happen. You can't um, tell a story um, in the modern world without sort of acknowledging the existence and the importance of social media. So, yeah, it is there. It's, um, it's a way for the crew to connect to the people who are basically funding their mission. Um, and it's a way for the, the military to also manipulate that public opinion to a degree. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, the, the AI that you mentioned um, is, is, yeah, very much unlike hell. It doesn't speak. Um, and a important part of the book is the idea that this is an intelligence that is not human. It's not like the like us only more artificial. It's actually a completely different creature or a different entity. Uh, and the humans can only guess what it's thinking. They're sort of subject to its whims, but they can't really understand its thought processes. Um, and they try, of course, because that's what human beings do. We try to project motivations and, and emotions onto animals, objects, and any, anything we encounter. It's a very human um, process. It's not a Hewlett-Packard machine, is it? No, no. The um, the HP machines that I used to deal with back when I had a real job before I became an author um, were, yeah, definitely a lot uh, simpler than, than this AI. But, yeah, it is something that we're, we're going to encounter more and more in the future. I, I'm very geeky, as you can probably tell from my past with HP and the fact that I've designed a, a nation simulation uh, online game that you mentioned before. But... Um, yeah, the the future that um, we're moving into, where AI is becoming more and more pervasive, is really. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I find it uh, a bit terrifying. Like, I, I'm a programmer, <laughs> so I know how easily programs run out of control. Uh, mm. And what happens normally is you will um, give a computer a set of instructions, uh, and then it will do something completely different to what you thought. And it's not because it disobeyed you. It's because it obeyed you way more literally than you actually expected. And, I, so, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, I did find that element really interesting, the discussions around the AI that they had about, you know, is it infallible, is it always right, or is it making decisions we just don't understand what those decisions are? Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting, very interesting element of it. And I wanted to sort of know your thoughts on AI as to whether you feel it could be 
I'm also a programmer, um, whether it's something that is an infallible or is it because it's also sort of written by humans that there's always going to be some sense of error in there? Yeah, it's um, there, there will also, I mean, fundamentally, AIs are kind of stupider than you expect because they, they are pretty simple at their core. They just do simple things incredibly fast um, and they can build on top of those simple things until it becomes really complex really quickly. So I remember I was thinking when I was hearing about this AI revolution that was supposedly coming and would take all our jobs, I remember thinking that as a writer, like writing would be maybe the last thing the robots would ever get good at. And already we're at a point where a robot um, is really good at synthesizing articles. It can write nonfiction articles really quite well and almost the same as a human. Um, the fiction side of it, I'm still kind of safe there. I haven't seen uh, an AI that can write fiction as well as a human being. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's surprising how well AIs can do these things. And I think the point that it gets interesting is when the AIs start to be able to write the code themselves, when they mm. can um, improve. Uh, and what happens at that point is where things get really interesting. Um, but yeah, I see AI as basically a, a tremendous good in the short term, but it's it's a power that at some point we'll probably have to figure out how to handle because it's yeah it has the capacity to run away. I often mm. thought that um, that the Terminator's Skynet system actually turned hostile because they did something really silly, like put it in charge of uh, monitoring content on the internet, and it just decided that humans were just a waste of space. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I think the. The grey goose scenario, that's sort of the classic endpoint of a runaway AI, which is where it, um, like, there's an example of like a machine that, say, um, makes envelopes. It's been programmed to make envelopes. And then it gets connected to the internet and it learns quite a lot in, in a very short period of time. And it becomes so efficient at making envelopes that it starts raising cities and destroying humans because doing that is a better way to make envelopes. <laughs> and there's there's no malice in that. There's no emotion. Mm. It's just a computer being really efficient at what it's doing. Oh. Well, the AI that we're talking about, or as I like to call them when I'm scared of them, AEs, is called Providence. It's a, a starship, and it's the title also of Max Barry's new novel, Providence. Eponymous will go with that, and it's a hatchet paperback. Now, I'm going to put in a track here called Providence, and oddly enough, it's by a group called Audio Machine, uh, which is an American production music company based in LA. And I kind of thought, well, yeah, this, this, this really fits the theme. So we shall go to that right now and then come back to Max and Megan and Rob. Triple R. Covers a few different scenarios. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're really good at pattern matching at the moment, basically, yeah. and classification. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this website, uh, what is it called? Like this person does not exist.com. We're it is. back now with Max Barry and Megan McHugh here chatting about Max's new novel, Providence, which is um, a hatchet paperback sitting right here on the desk. And we were listening to Audio Machines Providence which is all very providential of everybody. So um, what were we talking about? Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so this is a, a writer's dream sort of scenario. You've got four or five characters 
all in a very small space, the starship Providence, that happens to be three miles long. And it's a bit of a mechanical womb um, and a cramped elbow-knocking, head-bumping one too. A very big ship, but not a lot of, <laughs> a lot of space inside of it. So one member of the crew is a claustrophobe, so that's lots of fun for them. Um, and just thinking about all of that, Max, do you wish you'd written this after the lockdown? Oh, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, yeah, I've been told that like when I, I do a radio interview or something, like people are so sick of talking about nothing but the lockdown, so I should probably <laughs> not try to draw parallels between the book and what we're all going through. But yeah, I mean, the theme of of isolation that does crop up a bit in the book um, because mm. you've got these four people who are going to be alone for, for years and they have to deal with that and deal with each other. Um, so it's something that, you know, I've been writing from home for about 20 years now and I you know, love that. It's a fantastic job. It really is um, just everything I hoped as a kid to be able to do, to just sit in my study and, and make up stories for a living. But yeah, it is it is a bit strange being away from all the other humans for such a long time. Um, and it's not at all like what I was doing when I worked in an office and had people around me all the time. So yeah, I, um, I, I suit that, um, that sort of life pretty well. I'm quite happy building stuff by myself. Um, even when I was working for HP, I used to be happiest when I got to sneak away at lunchtime and tap away on my laptop and write a little bit of a story every day. Uh, but yeah, but I know a lot of people are not like that. And I know um, during the lockdown, I think it's actually been like a reverse um, social isolation thing for me because all the extroverts who are stuck at home now need to call people. So they're phoning up more than they did before. And yeah. uh, the phone is actually ringing here, whereas it didn't before. So that's yeah, it's slightly strange. But yeah, so um, the, the book has four characters. Some of them deal with the isolation better than others. Um, and there's, there's a kind of an introvert character who is probably most like myself and that fairly curious, logical guy, um, and he's quite happy by himself. But, um, yeah, obviously it's, um, it's something that people have to deal with uh, in their own way, the fact that they are removed from the rest of society. I, I what wanna... I... Go ahead, Megan. Oh, I was just going to say, what one speaking on sort of that dynamic element of the four characters, uh, one thing that I did appreciate a lot in the book was that you had a bit of a discussion around the importance of kind of the psychology and the interactions between the different personality types and how those different interactions and keeping people stimulated and kind of keeping them engaged and making them feel validated was a really important part of the running of that time um, like running smoothly as a group, as a unit, as a, as well as just the sort of mechanical type elements. Um, and I was just curious as to sort of how you came down to the types of characters and the types of people that you were going to have be the core of the book. Yeah, it's um, yeah. So the the characters, it is kind of a dream to have these four characters um, in a confined space for quite a long time, and. Um, it's almost a guilty pleasure because as a writer, you do love to do that, but, um, you, it's easy to forget that readers kind of want more than that. Uh, so I, I hope I struck a good balance in this book between, um, having a plot that, that pulls you along because things are actually happening, but there's enough time uh, and interest from the characters as well to, to get involved on a human level. Um, so the characters, yeah, it's um, I have a really chaotic process of starting a book. So it's a lot of writing of scenes, uh, pulling out a few sentences that I liked from this scene and throwing out everything else, going back and trying it from a different angle. I have that sort of thrashing around period that can last for 
Oh well, on this one, it was probably it was probably ten years ago when I wrote the first sentence of this book, and it's um, I've you know haven't been working on it solidly all that time, but I've come back to it every now and again and and seen what I liked and thrown out the rest, and so I discovered who the characters were as part of that process, and sometimes it would be uh, seeing something that um, seeing a character trait that I wanted to explore. And other times it was more like seeing um, a situation that I found interesting and starting to think about the motivations of a person who would end up in that situation. So you can do it both ways. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was yeah a really fun book to write. Really, it's um, a lot simpler than say Lexicon, my previous one, which was jumping around in timelines and had so many different characters. And it was really nice to be able to focus on a story that begins quite simply. It's all very clean. You've got these people. They've got this clear mission. You've got an enemy who is supposedly uh, quite simply evil uh, mm. and a noble war to fight and, and then exploring it from there. The, the enemy in this, uh, the salamanders, um, can spit micro-singularities, which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's, um, the book is not really about technology so much. We each have to find the interesting part of the story as, as authors. We, you know, I think any author who approaches the same idea from it will do it in their own way because they find different things interesting. So for me, um, the, the little things like that, um, which sort of define the enemy, it came quite late in the process. The, the bits of the book that were important to me was the concept of there was this situation, there's a, a story playing out where you've got this particular crew with a mission, but it's against a backdrop of a much wider unfolding story of why the war is happening, mm. um, who the enemy really is, what the ship really is. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, it's sort of the the whole mix of those things all, um, all tangled together that somehow eventually comes out in um, this story. But... Uh, the black holes thing, yeah, was um, was fun because I had to think of some some way for these these aliens to be dangerous, and I thought the idea of them being able to generate these very dense little bits of matter that exerted a gravitational pull and would so violently that would actually tear matter apart was um, was a neat way to do it. Black holes are pretty scary. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah. I might have missed this, Max, but um, I know how the human starship uh, travels through space. Well, at least I know the name of its space drive, which is called the Skip. Um, I kind of missed out. How did, how did the salamanders travel? Yeah, the salamanders um, have basically spread. Um, so they are they are adapted for a vacuum, um, or I shouldn't say adapted. They suit a vacuum very well. Um, and one of the questions that comes up from the curious member of the crew is um, why they're trying, why they're so hostile, what their ultimate aim is, uh, if they have one. Because they act in a, a very animalistic manner. They seem to be quite stupid. They're these hordes of creatures that learn very quickly, um, but don't seem to have a, a, any sort of great purpose or design in mind. So um, so the crew's job is uh, relatively straightforward for a lot of the book in that they have this incredible warship they, with its incredible technology. Um, the enemy is not really any threat to them, um, and the enemy gets wiped out in enormous numbers every time they meet. Um, so finding out where they came from um, is is a big part of the book, um, and I can't really <laughs> go into that without <laughs> no. spoiling some of it to a degree. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that uh, the the story itself 
uh, moves along very very quickly, and we are talking about Providence, Max Barry's new novel from Hatchet Books. And when I, I got to the end, I was, I was thinking about the, the AI starship, and it's a bit different from um, Neil Asher and uh, Alastair Reynolds' takes on that concept, but, but similar in some ways. Um, they like having free-barreled names for their ships, um, you know, uh, like... Uh, or even two-barrel ones, uh, Penny Dreadful in one of, um, one of yes. them. Um, yes, that was a good ship. Yeah, but you've got like the Joy of New Orleans and Spirit of Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. The um, Well, the ship in the book is actually never named. Um, the class of warship is Providence, uh, and the other ships are given names, but we never find out the name of this ship. Oh. Um, so, yeah, the, the other ones are definitely named in a kind of jingoistic style um, to appeal to the poor humans back home who are mm. funding all this with their their money, their tax dollars, and and the rest. So um, yeah, that's that's what that's. I haven't I haven't you know it's so tempting to come up with fantastic names for starships, um, but in this particular setting, the name of the ship is part of this propaganda war or, or PR war that the military has to fight back on Earth. So yeah, they are they are patriotic names. Uh-huh. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to play a little track here. Um, which is uh, another one from that I heard the other week on Lost in Space. This is actually part of the soundtrack. Uh, Christopher Lennertz does the soundtrack. It's called Maureen Flies, featuring Lisbeth Scott. And this is from the Lost in Space soundtrack album. I'm not quite sure that the, uh, the people aboard the starship in Providence are actually lost. They seem to know pretty much where they're going always, if not exactly what they will find when they get there. In the marmalade forest, forest. between the make-believe trees. G'day, I'm Brett McKenzie. I played an in elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Ellen Dole the King. You're listening to Zero G on Three Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Here we go. Maureen flies. The intrepid space explorer Maureen Robinson from the Netflix series. Lost in Space. Back in the studio, Rob Jan here on Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio. And we are talking to Megan McHugh, our co-host. Yes, I'm here. I'm Megan McHugh. <laughs> it's harder <laughs> to do our little intro when I'm remote. We'll get the hang of it. We'll get the yeah. hang of it. <laughs> and, and Max Barry, the author of the Hatchet paperback, the science fiction novel, Providence. That's the one. Now, uh, I did detect in Providence a hint of... Um, of Jennifer Government, one of your earlier novels, um, there are powerful corporations, almost uh, corporate corporate states in themselves, moving in the background of the book, uh, with the influence that they have over the military uh, wing that uh, runs this the a lot of the action in the story of the service. Is that deliberate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, so Jennifer Government was a fairly overt satire in the sense that it's set in a world where American corporations uh, basically run the world. There's, um, it's a kind of We live in a, a form of ultra-capitalism where the government exists but doesn't really have any power because everything is privatised. Um, and here in Australia, we are just an extension of the US. Um, and, you know, that's that was written basically because um, <laughs> you could see it fairly obviously happening uh, in the world around us that there, there were these um, corporations becoming increasingly powerful and increasingly pervasive in our daily lives um, to the degree where, you know, we almost 
we don't we don't see them as faceless entities. They have faces. They have um, brand identities. We have feelings about corporations. So uh, yeah, Jennifer Government, which was published a fair while ago now, I think it's it's almost coming up on twenty years since Jennifer Government. Um, but that idea that uh, the rise of corporate power is certainly something mm. that is of interest to me personally. And in Providence, it's yeah, it's far more in the background, but. Absolutely, I see the the influence of corporations. I mean, basically, corporations are a kind of artificial intelligence. They are a system of organising people that has um, its own characteristics, um, independent of all the people that make it up. So um, you have this, um, and I've come at this from a few different ways over different books, but they they are this kind of bubble of culture and rules um, and purpose that you can slot different people in and out of, and the people will have an influence, but ultimately there is something that survives all the people. Uh, and in Providence, there is um, the added complication of artificial intelligence and in that these corporations are not only creating technology and creating AI that can then be inserted into the warships, but they are run by AI as well. They're using AI to decide, um, say, in an interview, um, how well this potential candidate is performing. So the software is deciding who is getting hired. Um, the software is evaluating the performance of employees. So um, at some point in that process, presumably the software becomes the company. Um, and I don't really go into this in a whole lot of detail in the book. It's just something that is is referenced as happening. The AI, uh, and the, then, the AI is yeah. actually pretty good at, um, at picking candidates, apparently. Yes, the AI works very well, which is why people use it. Um, the companies who are using AI in this way are performing better than the companies who don't. So naturally, they uh, they tend to do more of it. So where that all leads um, is basically with corporations expressed as AI. And the AI that is um, in this ship um, you know, can be viewed as a corporation um, and, and, and a part of the corporation back on Earth. So uh, I thought that was... Um, that was a, an interesting way to, to look at it because I've always had this feeling that corporations are kind of, they're not people, but they're aliens. They are an alien <laughs> being that exists in our world with us. Um, they, they don't have the same emotions as people do, but they can fake them pretty well through ads <laughs> and um, mascots and things like that. So, and yeah, they, it was, and they it was be, a natural fit. They can be immortal as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They can live forever. Um, they can reproduce to an extent. <laughs> yeah. So they have they qualify in, as a life form, not on every point, but on enough to to make you uneasy. Like a virus. Def- like a virus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I definitely think sort of the discussion around like the corporations and the use of AI and just the trust that everybody had in the AI, it really did make me think about my own thoughts on AI because I just can't imagine trusting software that, I mean, it's a bit ironic, I suppose, that that like much and that kind of blindly, I guess. And I think there's, it made me realise there's a part of me that still thinks that even though humans are like riddled with heuristics and errors and just, you know, issues, that there's still things that humans can do or judge, or there's something inherently human that can help us make certain decisions that machines can't do. I don't know. It it made me kind of think a little bit about what I thought about AI and say something like that existed now 
what my feeling about it would be. But I think it's different to if it just appeared now to this probably happened incrementally over a period of time and people didn't even realise how much they trusted AI until it was just there and it was part of their lives, I guess. Right. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that because I think that is exactly right. It's a very common feeling that we all have when we encounter some new type of technology. Um, like the look at mobile phones, which are obviously um, incredibly pervasive now. Um, but they they have so much privacy invading technology in them mm-hmm. that if we want to sit down and think about it, um, yeah, you know, no one's really comfortable with the amount of tracking that is built into all of these services. Um, no one is really comfortable with a lot of the, the new technological breakthroughs that come out on an ethical level. But somehow they seem to keep getting trumped because they work, they're convenient, they, they make our lives a little bit easier. And so we have these ethical debates that kind of go nowhere because ultimately there's a really practical reason why we have this stuff. Mm. So, you know, maybe we're about to encounter that again with um, the government tracking app for COVID-19 where, you know, you can look at an app. um, uh, Do you want to have an app installed on your phone um, from the government that can tell the government quite a lot of things about you? Um, Well, under ordinary circumstances, no, absolutely not. Um, but in the middle of a pandemic, when there is a clear practical reason for it, well, you know, uh, maybe we do. And, you know, I probably will install that app. Um, so there's always mm, mission creep. Interesting. There's always mission creep, though, Max. I mean, um, the database, the, the, the big data that we assembled from that could be really useful to corporations, for example, uh, maybe for future medical studies. And then maybe they can do a little bit extra and then maybe a bit more. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely, that is the concern. And left in the hands of a government, you would practically guarantee that at some point or other, it would be abused in that manner. Um, but it's that it's that inversion of our needs, our normal needs, where we are used to living in a world where we don't have to worry about our survival, our, our food is taken care of, we have a place to, to live, most of us. And so we are focused on those higher needs, those social needs and those self-actualization needs. But once it becomes a question of survival again, then all of that higher stuff gets thrown out, um, mm. at least temporarily. Mm. So, um, yeah, mm. yeah, it's, um, it is funny how that happens. And also I'd say, too, the, um, the fear of technology that we have, and that is natural, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, we should be wary of these new technologies because they often lead us to places we didn't expect. But I remember, too, that um, when I was a kid, I remember seeing... Um, maybe some cover of Time magazine, some magazine like that. And it had a little uh, fetus in a test tube and it was about the new dangers of um, this new technology that was allowing people to grow humans in in test tubes, which seemed, you know, amazing, um, but also terrible and people playing God and and so many ethical concerns around that, um, which are perfectly valid. And there's obviously an enormous um, moral quandary in a lot of areas there. But Today, I have two daughters only because of the existence of IVF technology, um, which, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine um, if that wasn't, wasn't around. So it's, um, yeah, I feel like we have, um, we have this question that comes up again and again, like, are we prepared to go along with this? We don't really know where it's going to take us. And, you know, it takes us to places we didn't expect, both good and bad. Mm. It's it's a little nuanced, actually, the fear of technology, I find. Usually it's a fear of other people's technology. Once we've got it ourselves, well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll work with it. Because I think maybe the encounters with 
new technology in the past were like the first thing you know about it is somebody is shooting an arrow at you and it's like, oh, what's that? Right. Yeah. I do. I definitely think I like your example as well. Like when things become personal, and I mean, this is, you know, across every kind of research ever, is that when you can apply it to yourself in your own life, that's when the big moral questions that you know discuss over a cup of coffee become slightly different um, or you view things in a different light or think about things differently. Yeah, I think there's a sense of control that's important as well in that um, if there's a phone app that we can't control, whether it's tracking us or not, we feel really uncomfortable with that. But mm -hmm. if we have the option to disable it, a lot of us won't even bother to do that, but just the yeah. knowledge that we could if we wanted makes it okay. If they yeah. make it if they make it a game, Max, then everybody will just do it automatically. We'll sign anything. Oh, that's right. That's <laughs> right. If they embed that into Animal Crossing, I am on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all they have to do is make it a game, make make in-app purchases a thing, and also allow you to do player versus player. Yeah, well, this is like the rise of Facebook was kind of amazing to many of us because there'd been all these privacy concerns about, you know, what companies are finding out about us. Um, but it turns out if you give us a profile page, we'll just upload everything there is to know about ourselves uh, for free. Exactly. Non-stop. I, I, I don't know. I, I got a, a, um, a an announcement the other day of somebody's birthday and it said their 92nd birthday. Now I know they're not 92 years old. <laughs> the old fake birth year. Yeah. All right. Well, look, Max, it's, it's been great chatting with you today about your new novel, Providence. Uh, this is a, a hatchet book and out now. Is there an e-book as well, Max? Yeah, there's absolutely an e-book and there's an audio book as well. That's good because obviously you can't just walk into a bookstore at the moment and pick it up. You can't, um, but I know a lot of bookstores are very keen to keep selling books and they have uh, excellent ways of shipping books to you. So, yeah, there is no need to miss out. Hmm. So. It's not like we're in the uh, in the zone out there in the book. There's a, a an area of dead space where they can't receive any um, social media or anything. Oh yeah, nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks to Bella Lloyd from Hatchet Books and Triple R's own talk producer Elizabeth McCarthy for setting this up. Thanks very much, Max. Thanks for having me. That was great. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Megan. Now I'm just going to play a track here that's. Um, our David Bowie track for the, the day. And, and I think this actually sums up a lot of people's feelings <laughs> at the moment if they're, if they're working from home uh, and they're free of that whole decontamination ritual you've got to do in public, uh, feeling unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed, Mr David Bowie. This is Ken McLeod, creator of the Fall Revolution series and the Engines of Light trilogy. You're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. Yeah, back from Mr. Bowie there. Yes, I apologise for talking over him. <laughs> uh, too many screens, too many buttons. I'm, I'm sorry for saying on air, oh, I'm on air while being on air. <laughs> Just my brain is clearly, like, turned off. Yeah, we're all unwashed and somewhat slightly dazed here. This is just, you know, live radio, the excitement of yeah. home dial-in. And Rob's been a very big trooper um, running the panel from the studio. So big thanks to you, Rob, and we'll we'll get it sorted out. We're still, we're, just as we were like, we're really getting used to yeah, this. Yeah, just as we were being self-congratulatory. <laughs> I jinxed this, but I mean, yeah, humans can get used to anything. Yeah, yeah man, it's Megan's fault. <laughs> Oh, well, look, at least you know we're, you know, we're relatable now, right? We make mistakes. 
Yeah, I, I imagine lots of people at home using like Zoom or, or Skype or yeah. all those things for the first time. Goodness me. And I'm sorry if you were yelling at your radio telegraph to, <laughs> to turn off. Anyway, we're here now. Hmm. We're back. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we were, and, the, and the name of the novel we were talking about was Providence. It's a hatchet mm-hmm. paperback and it's by Max Barry. Look for the red cover with the astronaut. Hmm. Engaging Pacey Reed. The astronaut in the soup. Now, uh, last night um, was an extraordinary little tribute to actress Elizabeth Sladen uh, dropped on um, on all the different uh, streaming channels, especially Doctor Who uh, related ones. It was called Farewell Sarah Jane. It's a short audio story by the former showrunner of Doctor Who, Russell T Davies. And Elizabeth Sladen, the actress who played the character of Sarah Jane Smith, um, she was born in 1946 and passed away in 2011. So it's a little bit of a tribute to the uh, the ninth um, the ninth uh, anniversary of her of her passing. So um, uh, it's it's basically just a, a small uh, short story narrated by Jacob Dudman, who's played. Um, the Doctor in several audio dramas, and it's kind of like an, an epilogue uh, where uh, we attend the funeral of Sarah Jane Smith, the character, and um, so she's got all of her uh, her mates there from the Sarah Jane adventures, and a few of the companions as well, but no actual doctors, and there's a reason for that that they rather charmingly reveal during the the piece. All the feels, I got to say. Um, Elizabeth Sladen played the Doctor Who companion journalist Sarah Jane Smith alongside John Pertwee and then later Tom Baker and she also appeared in stories with other Doctors, uh, David Tennant and Matt Smith and voiced her iconic character in many spin-off audio adventures. She co-starred in a one-off pilot named K9 and Company and then went on to play the lead in the television series The Sarah Jane Adventures which ran for I think about five seasons. And her daughter, Sadie, now voices the character of Sarah Jane Smith in Fervor Audio Adventures. And um, a British folk singer, songwriter, genre folk singer, that's um, uh, sort of genre folk songs, uh, and activist, Talis Kimberley, wrote a tribute song called Goodnight, Sarah Jane. And we shall play that when we go out of the show today in... um, Tribute to actress Elizabeth Sladen and the uh, and the Sarah Jane Smith character too, from Doctor Who. So you can find that on online. Uh, just just Google um, uh, Sarah Jane Farewell and you will uh, find it quite handily. Um, there also, Acme uh, Cinematheque is now running an online program because, of course, they can't do it um, in the cinema at the moment. So go to Acme's website and you'll be able to find out more about their their program of um, digital screenings. Anything um, you'd like to say before we go today, Megan? Unmute myself. I've been finishing up that show, Devs, which we talked about last week, I believe. Time is so strange right now. I think it was last week. Uh, still very much enjoying that, and they're starting to talk a bit about determinism and free will, and so, you know, my brain's very into that at, at the minute. Um, otherwise, still plugging on with Animal Crossing. <laughs> but I'm going to try to dig into some new content and stuff to talk about in the coming weeks because I can't review Animal Crossing every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As much as, I'd, <laughs> as much as I'd like to. Megan reviews her progress in Animal Crossing. Exactly. What are the latest things I've purchased from Nook's Cranny? 
no one, no one needs to hear that. No, they don't. Um, but no, that's it from me. Yeah, and about it for me, Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. And again, thanks to, uh, to Max, uh, our author guest today, Bella Lloyd from Hatchet Books and Triple R Zone Talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. And also thanks to our long-suffering podcaster, Kayla Larson, who's out there still putting the pod together, even in these unusual circumstances, so that yes, you'll be able to listen. Yes, Yes, thanks, Kayla. Uh, so you'll be able to listen to Zero G at rrr.org.au as a podcast or, again, they're on demand if you want to hear the music as well and also our, our secret hidden voiceover messages during the show. It's, it's a good thing that we didn't actually kick back and reveal the planets of our origin. Yes, exactly. No trade secrets revealed. Yeah, and our cunning <laughs> plans for the future. So we're going out with a track called... Uh, Good night, Sarah Jane, and this is by um, Kimberly Tallis or Tallis Kimberly. Sorry, the other way around there. And Joe Brunetic coming up next now with Astral Glamour. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.